This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. We're here today with Wharton professors Laura Huang and Anoop Menon to talk about their new paper, which looks at entrepreneurial activity and the impact of watershed moments. Anoop and Laura, thanks for being here with us today. Thanks for having us. So first of all, could you please give us a quick summary of the problem that you were looking at, that you were studying in this paper? Absolutely. Uh, So this is a question that's near and dear to both our hearts. Uh, We are big aerospace buffs. And so the question we uh, were starting with is we look at the aerospace industry and even the past five years or so, there's been a huge amount of buzz, right? So there's Elon Musk, there's Mars colonization these days, you know, space travel. But on the other hand, this aerospace is an industry which is a classic example of a hard-to-break-into industry. This is a really entrenched industry, very high entry costs because of capital requirements, skills that are required, the top engineers that you reach, regulatory connections that you need to have. So just like if you were to ask me a classic example of a high entry barrier industry, this would be it. Many people had tried to enter it to do private space, and they had failed. But all of a sudden, in the past, say, decade or so, big change. So that's what kind of got us started. Like, okay, what happened here? Why? What drove this change? And can we understand something about industry evolution and entrepreneurial entry by studying this particular case? So Yeah, we were kind of we were interested in this sort of aspect that there's these new private firms that are entering this industry, right? So um so I was really interested in looking at these private firms. Anoop was really interested in their cognitive models and and their mental models. And our our third co-author, Tiona Zazul, who's at London Business School, was also interested in this aspect of entrepreneurial entry. And so we had this industry where where in the past it's been so difficult to actually enter. But yet we see that this progress has been made in the past sort of decade. So we really wanted to investigate why that was and how did that happen. Great. Now tell tell me a little bit about how did you do that and then what did you find once you did that? Because it it seemed to me that that's a pretty amorphous thing to try and study. So I mean, how did you go about looking at it? Absolutely. So we basically, um, we recognize that this has been, this is an industry that has a lot of history, obviously. So we went back, um, back to the 1950s and even earlier than that. And we've been looking at conference proceedings. So we have 21,000 articles, conference proceedings, documents dating back to that time period, all the way to the present day. Um, And so we looked at sort of what was happening. um, What are these, the changes? Where did these changes come from? Um, And we also supplemented it with lots of interviews with um, regulators, uh, engineers, people at all these different sort of all of the different touch points that 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 would be in this industry. In fact, one of the fun things, the really fun things about this project was I got to talk to an astronaut, I got to talk to a colonel in the Pentagon, I got to talk to NASA people. It was fantastic. Sometimes all in the same day, right? Sometimes all in the same day. Sometimes, right? Um, and and they're they've been incredibly willing to kind of share their own thoughts on this industry. And so we've used that um, and and looked at the, both the the conference proceedings and all these documents we had and kind of tailored it and and um, thought about all of these different angles that we could look at it. Now, was there a particular watershed moment? Because like when you say watershed moment. 
is it always one specific discrete thing or can that be a little more like is that it can be a little broader than that like when you say that was there one one moment for this industry or was that one moment sort of a bunch of different things that happened or right in fact it might be helpful to just build up a little bit to that right so the literature if uh, the academic literature on change uh and like how do industries change, where do opportunities come from, they tend to look at either like big breaks in technology, so technological discontinuities, or big regulatory shocks that happen, or some sort of like social movement, collective action. And these are like three big buckets that have been talked about. And there are aspects of that here too, but here what was interesting is this cognitive element as well. And that's where this watershed moment comes in. And what what we mean by that is, if you think about any industry, especially these kind of stable, long-standing industries, you have the major players in the space who all have beliefs about who does what, how things work, the rules of the game, if you will, almost tacit rules of the game. And if anybody tries to deviate just by themselves, they get kicked out or like they get pulled back into it, right? So these are relatively resilient mental structures or collective mental models that kind of define the rules of the game for the industry. And what we're trying to say is that these watershed moments are big shocking events which cause actors in a space to like really sit back and wonder, hey, should things really be this way always? And so to your question, uh, we had at least from our chats, um, it resonated very, very much with what the articles were saying as well. Two sets of watershed moments. One, okay, there's the initial big watershed moment, uh, which is the Sputnik moment, and it is a term by itself, right? So Sputnik gets launched, and all of a sudden, over here, we freak out, like, oh my God, and that causes NASA to be founded, DARPA to be founded, big changes. All of a sudden, space goes from being a backwater to being top of, you know, this is the Cold War being played out in space. So that gels the collective mental model around the belief that, oh, space is for big governments, big firms, failure is not an option, a lot of money is required, only the top talent can be here. So that's the set of beliefs that gels around this goes through the Apollo program, through the 80s as well, the shuttle program, but the first set of shocking watershed moments happen at the end of the 80s. So you get the Challenger disaster, which very shockingly, very vividly demonstrates to the public that, you know what, maybe the government doesn't always get it right. Maybe, you know, things can go really badly wrong. At the same time, you get the Cold War ending, the Berlin Wall falling, like literally, it, and that causes many uh, people to question, like, okay, why are we spending so much on space? Because we're not racing Russia anymore. We're not ra there is no USSR anymore. Right. There is no Soviet. So, so, and then committees get formed, like, how do we rethink space? So that causes what we call, like, the initial shakeup of the model. And then there's the yeah, second. Yeah, so that's, so what Anoop is kind of referring to is this dislodging of this mental model that was there, right? So we see that, as he's mentioning, that a lot of this entry, that a lot of this disruption that we've seen in the past was happening through technological discontinuities, through regulatory discontinuities, through collective action. Um, but what we're finding in our in our data and our analysis of this context is that it's these, con these, these cognitive discontinuities that are from, that are catalyzed from these water watershed moments. So watershed moments here are these 
very emotionally resident, very publicly sort of recalled moments that we're seeing, like Challenger, right? Like the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, and those dislodged. And then we find three other ones that kind of re-solidified, that, that brought about this new mental model, right? So we had in 86, right, Challenger in 89, we had the Berlin Wall, and then we have um, then we have Columbia, the Columbia disaster, right? Again, something that we all vividly remember, right? I can remember watching this and 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 can recall where I was when when Columbia happened. Um, and then we also have, you know, the awarding of the COTS contract and Ansari X Prize. Ansari X Prize actually came first, right? So we have we're seeing that there's this public, this new entrant, this relatively unknown company that's getting awarded this contract that prior to that was going to people that were connected to the government, that were connected to NASA, right? And so we're seeing this sort of shift that's re-solidifying into something that's, that's we believe now that it's not just the entity, it's not just the government, it's not just um, a national um, endeavor. Now there's this public, these public firms, uh, sorry, these private firms that are kind of coming in. Right. And yeah. so the story, at least the way we say it in the paper, so we had that initial model, which is called the old space or the big space model, mm -hmm. gets really shaken at the end of the 80s. And then the government actually tries pretty hard to encourage private sector in engagement. They try different programs through the 90s, but uh, there isn't much success. In fact, there is a uh, Texan banker billionaire called Andrew Beale, who's like Elon version 0.0, like, you know, before Elon, right. who put in like hundreds of millions of his own uh, dollars into Beale Aerospace, his uh, private space venture. But he shut shop in 2000 or so, and there's a very public letter that he put out where he blames NASA, basically. Says, hey, you say you want private space to be involved, but you're still making your sweet deals. You give your sweet deals to Boeing and Lockheed's of the world, the big, the, uh, the cost plus contractors, the primes as they're called. We small guys, we just can't compete. And so he shut shop, right? So this is transition period where we're trying to bring in private space, but we don't know how to do it. There is no consensus or a collective mental model on how this should be done. But then uh, once after Columbia happens and then the Ansari X Prize, everybody to the T keeps talking about how the Ansari X Prize was such a big moment. All of a sudden, you go, oh, my God. A private company with private money was able to build a plane which went to space, came back, turned around, did that again. People, private people can actually do this. That's like a big shock to everybody. Now they actually believe it is possible. Once they believe it is possible, things start to get into motion, right? So then we have the precursor of the COTS contract, like people put together commissions and, oh, we should really treat this like a, uh, like almost like a venture capital, like NASA should become more like a venture capital firm rather than this cost plus regulator who's controlling everything. It's a big mindset shift that happens and then you start converging towards the new model that we see today. At least that's the story. <laughs> <laughs> and now with this research, so first of all, what can the space industry take from this, but then also what can other industries take from this? Yeah, I think that's a, 
It's a great question because we we are relatively contextualized, right? We're looking at this one industry. And so something that we'd love to do is to look at other industries as well. But I think in general, right, we tend to think that disruption and we tend to think that new industry emergence, entrepreneurial emergence happens from these big technological shocks, right? Something big happens and that paves the way for other new entrants to come in. Or there's a big regulation that kind of changes things, that changes the incentive structure that allows other people to come in. And what what I think industries can take from this is that it's more complicated than that. There's lots of things that are that are happening. There are these emotionally resonant events that are happening all the time. We don't know what form it's going to take necessarily, but they are affecting the mental models and things are happening. So even if there are technological shifts, it's co-evolving alongside these other changes in our ways of thinking and our mental models, our, our mental schemas and prototypes and all these sorts of things, these collective ways of, these collective beliefs. Um, and so keeping that in mind as industries are are evolving and how, as companies are trying to play within these these sort of rules, um, is really important, I think. To, uh, if I could just quickly build on that, maybe another way, paraphrasing that would be, you know, in the strategy courses, uh, entrepreneurship courses, we say, oh, where are opportunities? Let's analyze the industry landscape. Let's analyze the technological landscape and regulatory landscape to find where the opportunities are. What we're saying is that maybe we can also analyze the mental landscapes, the cognitive landscapes of the agents, what their beliefs are and how they're changing as another avenue to think about where opportunities might be and where change might come from. Well, because yeah. it definitely seems like with the spa- with the case of space that, I mean, the technology was there for a long time, but people didn't believe that it could happen privately. And so it does seem to be kind of a I don't know, cautionary tale almost to other industries that, I mean, you may have the technology, you may be able to do it, but if people don't believe you can do it or don't believe it's your place to do it, then they're not going to buy into it anyway. Perfectly said. Yeah, the technology is absolutely, it's an enabler, right? So even in in new space, um, in the aerospace industry, what we're seeing, you know, we tend to think of it as a very technologically heavy sort of industry. And there are advancements, right? And those are enablers. Um, Without the internet, this wouldn't have happened. Without other sorts of things. But those were not responsible for the disruption. They were not responsible for this this entry. Um, In fact, you know, Anoop has had people say to him, you know, I could go to Home Depot and I could pick up some parts and still make this this sort of habit. Now, that's not to say this is not very technological. It is. There's lots of sort of really, uh, you know, there's rocket scientists, right? So, um, but but these are we're seeing lots of incremental advancements. We're seeing lots of other things. It's not one big technology shift that or one big technology disruption that was causing this. And the other thing is exactly as you said. It's the tech that catches the attention, right? Everybody like, oh, the tech changes, or maybe even some regulatory change. But the cognitive thing is a bit subtle, and, and to understand that. Even if you have the best in class tech, like so, uh, I've had rocket scientists who are like the best in the business. Like we know how to do this. We've done. We've we've had the capability for decades. But nobody would believe me. Nobody would fund me. So what can I do, right? Right. So, there you go. Now, how it's interesting to me, like, because one of the things that this research seemed to rely a lot on was actually person to person interviews. I mean, data as well, but also really sit down and talking to people. And these days, we hear a lot from companies about I have to analyze my data. I have to analyze my data. So when you're looking at companies that want to analyze mental models, I mean, is this what they need to do? Do they need to go out and talk to people? I mean, and how would they go about doing that? Like, it seems like that's almost like the opposite of what we almost seem to be encouraging companies to do today, like 
you need to look at data, but this looks at people. Well, there's such a big put. I mean, we talk so much about big data now, and I think data is absolutely it's critical. We need data in order to make our decisions, but we also need to remember. And some of both of our other work looks at this very aspect of, you know, data. You need to also have a lens with which to analyze this data, with which to understand this data. And that's where I think these sort of personal interactions, bringing together what your mental model might be, looking at um, different contexts, that's really necessary in order to make sense of the data. Because even though you have all this data, you still need to find a way to slice and dice the data, pick out which things you're going to to focus on, try and analyze it in a Way that's that's cohesive and makes sense. So all of this sort of goes together. And just to add to that, it's kind of funny that you asked that because one of the other research streams that I have is actually working on big data and machine learning. And one of the things that I'm trying to do with that is to extract people's mental models from what they say and what they do using big data techniques. So while Talking to people is still what I like to do, and that's like really the, you know, that's one very good way to get at this. I don't think it rules out data either. There's a lot that you can say about how people are thinking that you can do from uh, doing machine learning on that as well. So it kind of speaks to the idea that people need to sort of do both or use one as a lens to look at the other. And corroborate even, like it complements each other. In fact, it's funny because one of the reasons why we started working on this paper together is because we were both interested in in these this kind of cognition that's happening, but also these emotional sort of resonant events. And Anoop looks at it from one angle where he's looking at the big data and how you can actually, I'm looking at it from intuition and gut feel. And so a lot of our, you should see some of our conversations when we're going back and forth and try, and then we kind of meet in the middle and think about the ways that both of those things are important and impact what it is we're looking at. So it's been kind of a, a fun journey just in that, um, in the different angles that we've both come at understanding cognition, emotions, and all of these different things that, that we're capturing here. Now, what would you say sets this research in particular apart from other research that's been conducted on similar topics or on this topic? Yeah, you want, you want me so to take this? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I think that um, what we mentioned a little bit before is that, you know, there are different ways of understanding emergence and entrepreneurial entry. Um, and we've seen lots of these different ways that that definitely resonate in, in a lot of different contexts and this context as well, right? But what we're finding here is that there's another route that perhaps could co-evolve with these things. So it could co-evolve, it could potentially supplant, it could be, um, so you do have these, these different ways that emergence is happening. We also find that through these emotionally resonant events, through these watershed moments, that there are drivers, there are catalysts that are changing the way that that proceeds. And so I think it's important to get this holistic, you know, how are we actually understanding this in all of its complications and all of the different forms that, that it could that it could hash out and the ways that it could come about. And so I think that's something that we were a little bit surprised about, that it could both there are instances where it co-evolves. There are instances where this might be driving the effect, um, and that it's important to understand all of these different factors. Now, can you only, with a watershed moment, I mean, can you actually identify a watershed moment while it's happening, or is it only possible to do that looking back? That's a very good question. Yeah. Um, right now, it's all historical, right? So it's what people are saying and what we can see in the text. Can we do it live? Something we need to think about. Um, I'm sure psychologists can 
like Laura, can quickly develop <laughs> metrics uh, to see like the emotional resonance that certain events are having, what long-term impact that it could have on the industry. Good question. What yeah, think? I think, I mean, in order to understand the mental models, right, so a lot of this is because there's this solidifying sort of process, we could perhaps identify this is an important emotionally resonant event. But to actually understand the effect of that, right, it, it, there is some more sort of things that, that need to go into this. But also, you know, something that Anoop and I have talked about is that it's really important to understand how this continues to evolve, right? So Anoop just this morning was talking to me about, you know, there's also these negative these negative events that we're seeing, right? Something goes wrong and something's blowing up. We see this all over the news, right? And so it's important to continue to, to track this. Um, do you want to say more about that? Because you actually, this was something we talked about just this morning. Yeah, I mean, recently SpaceX's, um, the rocket exploded on the launch right. pad and uh, it can't get big, like it literally blows up, right? And this people have said this is a very touchy industry exactly because how visible and explosive everything is. And people are worried that one big failure is enough to go back to where we were. So to your question, what determines the impact that any one event is going to have? I think that's a great question for future research. And that brings me actually to my last question. Is there anything else you guys plan to look at in the future where how to continue this research? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of different things, right? So we want, one thing is we want to understand a little bit more of the micro drivers of this, right? So right now we're looking at what's happening. We're looking at these changes in mental models. But one thing that we've talked a lot about and with our co-author, Tiona, as well, is kind of understanding a little bit more of the, the granular mechanisms behind this um, and what's actually happening on this more individual level. Um, the other thing that we mentioned a lot is just, you know, the context, right? This is an in-depth look into one, partic one particular industry, one particular context. Um, we believe there's other contexts where these emotionally resonant, these watershed moments are, are going to have this big effect on mental models. Um, but they may operate in different ways. In some industries, it could be technology that's driving in and these watershed moments are taking more of an ancillary role, or it could be the opposite. There's lots of different iterations of, of, how, of how this could come about. So I think those are all different things that we, that both we as well as other scholars will continue to look at so that we can really understand um, this phenomenon of entry and disruption. And yeah. Anoop and Laura, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks, thanks for having us. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.